The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they pick themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. Before we start today's show, and at the risk of being a little too achievement-oriented, I have to tell you that this is the 100th episode of The Anxious Achiever. To those of you who've been with us from the beginning, or if you've just picked up the show this week, thank you. Thank you for helping the show grow, for doing your own part in destigmatizing the topic of mental health at work, for sharing the show with your friends, and for downloading it millions of times. Now, today's show, it's the first in a two-part series on perfectionism. Many of our struggles, especially our mental ones, are hidden from the world. And those of you who think of yourselves as anxious achievers probably work hard to control or to create an image of what the world sees of you. The person who never has a typo in their emails, never forgets a birthday, or whose body looks a certain way because they never miss a day in the gym. We're driven to pursue perfectionism for all kinds of underlying reasons, and we'll explore in this series the many myths behind perfectionism. I was inspired to reach out to our guest today because I read an op-ed she wrote on over-exercise, a piece she wrote called Exercise Was the Perfect Coping Mechanism Until It Wasn't. She opened up in that piece and in her other writing about her journey from being a homeless teenager to being accepted into Harvard University and working at Google. But the big achievement that she had been chasing because it felt like a matter of life and death for her didn't always fill the void that she hoped it would. Emmy Needfield is the author of the book Acceptance, a memoir, and we started by talking about her early life and her path to college. My family kind of fell apart when I was nine years old, and I had been in a super conservative, like Christian, evangelical household, and when I was nine, my father came out as trans, and Back in the early 2000s in Minnesota, like nobody had ever heard about this. And it led to a really messy divorce between my parents. My mom ended up getting full custody. My other parent, who I call Michelle, like moved away and I never saw her again. And so for the next like years, I was living with my mom, who was a hoarder and kind of she took me to doctors. I was medicated. Like Things just really kind of spiraled out of control. So that by the time I was in high school, I spent time in a residential treatment center and I was in foster care for a year. And then I got into boarding school, but I was homeless during breaks. Mm -hmm. And so when I thought about an elite college, it was not so much about like the brand name as much as like the security that I believed that it was going to give me and also being very aware of the price of college and like 
Harvard and the other Ivy League schools had just announced these like financial aid initiatives. And so I knew if I could get into one of those really top tier schools, I would probably pay nothing. Right. But even one tier down, it was going to be like tens of thousands of dollars in student loans. So it truly was an all or nothing decision. It really, really felt like that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that really struck me in your book <laughs> was the strategy and the almost cunning that you applied on your path to, quote, success. You you became that girl who can get all the scholarships, who can win all the prizes, who can get scholarships to boarding schools, even as you describe yourself as, you know, your shoes being held together by duct tape and your hair unwashed. How did you learn those social skills? Like, how, how did the package of the overcomer, which is the narrative I think you put forth and that people love because it, feel, it makes them feel like they're doing good when they help you. Mm-hmm. How did that all come together for you? It's interesting that you bring up the image of the overcomer and the girl with unwashed hair and duct tape together shoes mm-hmm. as if they're in opposition when I think in many ways my past really prepared me to be able to kind of objectify myself in the way that I had to, to get the favor of these institutions that could help. Yeah. And so when I was 14 and I was sent to this residential treatment center, the way that we had quote unquote therapy, it was not really like talking about our feelings or like processing trauma and abuse Instead, it was like we had to write confessions. And so every week you had an assigned topic and you had to like write in your assigned notebook with like a little pencil because we couldn't have erasers or pens. The answer to a question where you basically take full responsibility for everything in your life. Mm. And it's this kind of exercise in like storytelling. If you did poorly, you would be sent to your room and have to be basically socially isolated for at least 24 hours and like unable to leave the building, like listen to the radio. And so it kind of imprinted on me this idea of like, okay, the people in power, they have a certain story that they want to hear from me. And if I can tell it, I can have freedom. And if I fail, I will be punished. And you pretty soon knew the narrative that would manipulate almost people with power to give you scholarships and money and admission. Yeah, exactly. Because I could I could see it when I was even talking to to doctors and therapists that if I complained about my house, like, oh, we don't have hot water, there's mice everywhere, I would be branded as difficult. Even if it was the truth. I mean, it was the truth. And instead, it required like so much self-control to be able to like speak in the language that like adults wanted to hear and try to do things in a way that made them trust me, even if that was actually like less a less accurate version of events. You have this great scene in the book where you you've won a the Horatio Alger scholarship, which is like twenty five thousand dollars. It's a lot of money, and you're being feted by all these wealthy donors in Washington D.C. And you realize that Rush Limbaugh is the keynote speaker, and you're like, 
oh my God, I am being exemplified as the ultimate, like, I don't need government. I don't need help. I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. (laughs) But you were like, I needed the money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was a surreal, it was a surreal moment. And just like the really the look inside of these scholarship contests, you know, I got to meet Clarence Thomas um, before he was cool, right? And yeah, it was it was so eye-opening to me to see, like, this is how these stories of overcoming are used. And for me, it was like, this is all that I had. I had these buzzwords. I had these events that had happened to me. It was really my best and what felt like only shot at getting out of my situation quickly was to use it. And it was really devastating to me to be in that auditorium and realize like, oh, my story about my life is being used in this way to justify policies that hurt other people that hurt me, that hurt the other winners, and that also like have a bigger impact in society. And that was part of why I was so excited to write this book was that, you know, I started to realize that these tales of the young bootstrapper, that they are not just about college admissions, and they're not just about scholarship. They really infiltrate every part of our society and shape the way that we think about how the world should work. I, I would say it's it's perhaps the most pervasive myth in American society, and it's it's of course so intersectional. I mean, one of the things that you write is you know you were white and blonde and from Minnesota, like you fit this really appealing package. And if you had been black or Latina or you know had a different background, would you have gotten chosen for those scholarships? Would you have gotten? your story, your narrative as cherished and prized as it became. <sighs> yeah. And I I thought that was so important to write about, especially as the future of affirmative action is at stake. Mm-hmm. Because the narrative that I hear a lot is this idea that, oh, if you're a child of color, it's so much easier for you. And like speaking as a white person, that was not at all what I witnessed. And even when I was in the residential treatment center, there were two units. My unit was mostly white, and there was maybe one kid of color there at any given time. And the unit above us was almost all black and brown, and many kids had been referred through the correction system. And so it's it's something that I saw up close, but that people don't really talk about, that I think we should be talking about. Yeah. And it ties into another theme in the book, which I think is super powerful, which is uh, something I've always had a problem with too, which is our our total obsession with grit, right? Mm -hmm. That, And this goes back (laughs) to you having to be in control of your story when you're at the psych ward. But but basically, you know, you fit into such a narrative for people of grit and resiliency and Mm -hmm. almost trauma porn, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You write, I was supposed to exemplify post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic stress disorder. That focus on grit became kind of the driving question in my life. Hmm. So 
shortly after I got into Harvard, and by shortly after, I mean within like 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. I faced this weight where I thought, oh my God, I got into Harvard. Now everybody is going to expect that I'm this person who went through hard things and now is like smiling, grateful, happy person for the rest of my life. (laughs) And like, I mean, I was staying in a hostel, like thousands of miles from my mom. I was all alone that day. I was super lonely and I felt like, oh no, now this is going to be the price that I pay for this success. And I was also saddled with this guilt because that person that felt fake, that was who I said I was. Mm. Like I promised colleges, I am this strong overcomer. I was the one who wrote that narrative. And it was fitting into a story that I knew I had to tell, but I'm the one who penned it and took my experiences and twisted them to fit that mold. Yeah. And you had a multi-thousand dollar college advisor who took you on as one of her pro bono students who basically was like, use it, kid. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, thank God I had her on board because I, I don't think I would have known all of the conventions that I had to fit into in order to tell the story. Like when I was writing my college essays, I was the summer that I was 16 and I had run out of places to stay. I was sleeping in my car and I found the drafts while I was like doing research for the book. And these first drafts were so bad. They were, I mean, and they also kind of broke my heart because like I wrote an essay about like paint chips because I would go to like the hardware store and I would just like collect these paint chips because they were free and, you know, it felt like abundance to me. And I wrote about like, oh, what are the different colors that I would like paint the rooms in my home when I have a home? And I mean, maybe that would be a good essay actually talking through it now, but like it was really, really sad. And reading it, like I was like, wow, this doesn't strike the right tone of what they're looking for. Like it's too sad. Just give the audience some detail about your mother's home and why you couldn't live there. My mom was a compulsive shopper and hoarder. And this was before the hoarders TV show. The word hoarder was not really a term that we had. And so we just, she would tell people we have a lot of stuff. Although she she was poor. She she made very little money, right? I guess it depends on how you define poor. Like we made like, she made like $35,000 a year, which, so we were like, we were working class for sure. But a lot of that money went to clearance shopping. Mm. And so after work, we would go to, on this rotation of like, Target, the grocery store, every Walgreens in the vicinity. And she would get into the state, like looking through all the clearance items and finding like scissors for like a dollar and buying like a hundred scissors. And that quickly eats up a ton of cash. And then once that stuff was in our home, with a few exceptions, like it didn't leave. And so by the time I was like 13, 
there were piles of stuff like up to our hip. Like you couldn't sit at the dining table, like every chair was covered. In the kitchen, we had like one stove burner wasn't covered. (sighs) And all of the drawers were like pulled out as a place to hold even more stuff. The shower was filled. There were rodents everywhere. And the mice just became completely fearless because there was no chance that we were ever going to catch them all because a lot of the stuff that was hoarded was expired food, boxes of cereal. Mm. And so I developed health problems because of it, like asthma and migraines. And so I did go to the doctors for that. I received inhalers. I took anticonvulsants for migraines. And, you know, when I tried to tell people like, this is what's going on, basically nobody believed me. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Your body is a huge theme in the book, how you abuse it, how it's part of your control. One of my favorite, favorite sentences, and I I have to read this because I feel like I feel like a lot of listeners might resonate with this. It's junior year and you are desperate. Your college plan is already thought out. You feel like you're behind. You're just desperate, right? And you go to the guidance counselor and she dismisses you, right? She's just like, I have seniors who are way ahead of you. Be quiet. Go away. And as she's dismissing you, you you write, I suddenly felt fat. Why did her dismissal and diminishment of you make you feel fat? I had really internalized this idea that successful people especially successful women and girls, were skinny. Hmm. And that having a body that looked the right way was going to be a crucial part of getting myself out of bad situations. And earlier in the book, I wrote about this kind of transformative conversation that I had when you know, I had an eating disorder and I was hospitalized for it at this eating disorder clinic that was filled with like rich white suburban girls. Mm-hmm. And the psychiatrist there, she asked me where I wanted to go to college. <laughs> and that was something that I had never encountered in a mental health setting before. I had just turned 14. And I felt really, really special that she said that to me and that she said, you know, I think you can go to college early if you wanted to. And then later in that hospitalization, which I write about, I realized, oh, this is probably something that she asks every single patient. (laughs) 
And so that feeling of having my ambition be valued and my dreams be considered, that was really tied up for me with like, how does my body look? How much do I weigh? You know, because I was at that point where I was so underweight that I needed to be hospitalized Mm. and suddenly people were taking me seriously. (laughs) And so then when people like didn't take me seriously, it made me think that the problem was was with my body, the way I looked. You were also later a rower when you were at Harvard, which is a really punishing sport. And and you took it even further than it needed to go. You write that it took the place, you were a cutter for a long time. And what about rowing and the punishment you put your body through? What did that do for you? I self-harmed pretty regularly in high school. And when I got to college, I was really dead set on stopping. Mm. Like I wasn't going to cut myself. I wasn't going to make myself throw up. Part of this was because I was dating somebody who like, said he was going to break up with me if I ever did that again. Mm. Part of it was that those things seemed really like low class at Harvard. <laughs> and, and also, I knew that they weren't really helping me mm-hmm. or they weren't helping me anymore. And so I started exercising in part to release stress and honestly, largely just to fit in because that was something that preppy people did. (laughs) And there was nothing preppier than crew. And I would see these boats going down the Charles filled with people in visors. (laughs) And I, I didn't really believe that I could be one of them, but I'm five foot 10 and people kept telling me like, you should, you should join the team. Like they would take you. And finally, when I was a junior, I did that. And I wanted to be pushed. I wanted to feel like physical pain, the burning from the races, the long-term struggle of like training. I wanted to feel all of it. Mm. And it kind of gave me a similar outlet to self-harm. It also gave me a lot of like social praise. I I relate to this a lot. I I think that I also use exercise and the compulsion to be in great shape and exercise Mm -hmm. and push myself as something, but I also Mm -hmm. am always in pain. And Mm -hmm. it's just, it's a crazy thing. I don't know if I want to say it's surprising, but it's such a shame that we don't talk about the downsides of overexercise more. Mm. When I was cutting myself, people made it clear, like, you're doing a bad thing. It's dangerous. And it was just this swift, immediate judgment, Mm -hmm. regardless of, like, why I was doing it or what it was doing for me. And then with exercise, it definitely was way too far in the other direction. And I think we see any form of exercise as being, like, productive. Mm -hmm. It's productive. It helps us work harder. It fits with our idea of how does a successful person's body look. Yep. It's discipline. It's all that stuff we idolize. And we don't ask like, okay, but why? Why is this person doing it? Why is this person doing it to this extent? And also at the extremes, like what are the harms? Yeah. And 
after I wrote an essay about how I started rowing and used rowing to replace self-harm, I actually heard from so many professional athletes really? or former professional athletes. And I think like the pain that so many people who were like child gymnasts or dancers, like the physical toll that that takes on their body, even into adulthood, that is a type of pain that we erase. And I think it's very similar actually to the idea of grit, right? I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah. Where we're like, you, this like pain, it made you so good at what you did. And so therefore, like the pain, it doesn't matter. Right. Like we're not going to talk about it. If you complain about it, you are like greedy <laughs> and, you know, undisciplined when that just seems so unfair. As you were saying that a million marketing campaigns popped in my mind and mm. and I and I always think I I love Peloton but I also hate mm. it but I think of Robin Arzon the Peloton mm. instructor who's so incredible and also has a has a story of of trauma and will say exercise was my way out of trauma and she's an ultra marathoner and I mean I always look at that and I think why is she running so much mm-hmm. Oh yeah I love that you bring that up because I read all about her story when I was in a really, really dark time. Mm. I was in my first job out of college at Google and, you know, it had been my dream job, but then it took a turn for the worse. And, you know, I was working out like two or three hours every day. Oh my God. Yeah. And on this back injury, right? And I was being praised for it all the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading about Robin's story. And how she had been, I believe, a lawyer. And the things that she does for people, it's incredible. It's wonderful. And I remember just thinking, like, well, what if she really wanted to be a lawyer? And that that is a type of loss, too. And it can be both ways, right? That what she has done with Peloton and with, you know, helping so many people, that can be valid. And it can also be valid that, like, there was this other life that she could have had or that any trauma survivor could have had. Mm. And that's gone. Mm. And that's something that I think about that I've grappled with a lot where I am, I am very grateful for the life that I have today. I feel like I wound up in a place that does suit me well, Mm. right? Where as a kid in Minnesota, like reading all these books, dreaming of living in New York, like that's where I live now. Mm-hmm. And there is also loss. And there is also this, this sense that things could have been different. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't believe everything was for the better. And I think there's a lot of pressure to say, you know, I'm glad that everything happened to me that did. But I don't, I don't think that's accurate. And I think that that really dulls our empathy towards other people. And and I would imagine it's a lot of pressure on you. Definitely. After I had gone to Harvard and I was working this enviable job, I felt like I was not allowed to be impacted by the things that happened in high school. That comes along with being a teenage girl, like on your own. Mm -hmm. And you were sexually assaulted. mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like I lived in fear 
for years of, you know, somebody taking advantage of me when I was like alone and vulnerable. And then it happened after, after I got into Harvard, shortly after. Yet it felt like I wasn't allowed to be upset. I wasn't allowed to grieve. And it was just like, you know, even my mom, when I told her, she reminded me, she's like, you're going to Harvard. Like you're a Harvard person. As if that takes it away. Bad things don't happen to Harvard people. (laughs) Exactly. Or like, you know, you're a Harvard person, like buck up. Like basically this is as if like the assault was like part of what it costs to go to Harvard and that it was something that I've encountered from so many people is the sense of like, we believe in this story where someone goes through hard times and then they make it out and everything is great. And so as someone who is part of that narrative, it's up to me to take all of the injustices that I've experienced and to transform them Mm -hmm. through my effort into something beautiful. Mm -hmm. Resilience. Resilience. And that's just so much weight. And that made me so, so miserable because I, I could not do that. I tried and I tried and I just couldn't. And it made me feel like a failure and like I was ungrateful and unworthy and all of the bad things. And it made me wish at times that I had not survived. Wow. Do you still feel that way? No, I don't. And for me, the key was to realize that that I was affected by the bad things that happened to me. That any every single person on this planet, bad things happen to them, and they're changed. They're impacted by them. And I ha- really had to let go of this idea of redemption, that mm. I could redeem the past, and instead kind of start anew, right? With like, this is what happened. This is what I have. And then here's how I'm going to move forward. Yeah. And that's something that I really hope, I hope resonates with people who have experienced this pressure. Like you need to be gritty. You need to be grateful. Like it's been so healing for me to be able to like own, own my past and own the impact that it had on me and not apologize for that. And that is the only way that I've really found happiness. Are you still a perfectionist? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I feel like I'm supposed to say I'm not, but it definitely lives in my body where I take smaller things. And I remember this college applications journey. I remember the desperation of like, where am I going to stay? Like, what am I going to eat? And so I go through this process of having to remind myself that that things are different now and that I get to choose. But it's definitely still a struggle. It's been part of me for so long. Like, I don't know if it's ever going to fully go away, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that too. You know, when I wanted I wanted to talk about perfectionism in an episode because I think it's 
just not talked about enough. And and we, you know, we idolize perfectionism. We think that all the great artists, all the great innovators, Steve Jobs, right, they're perfectionists. But that's not really a clinical definition of perfectionism. And, and when you're a perfectionist, it actually really sucks. And when I came across your story, I thought about it in the context of like, well, Emmy had to be. Like, her perfectionism drove her being able to eat and and not have to live in her car. Like the discipline that you exhibit, the amount of AP courses you took <laughs> um, is is really stunning to me. Thank you. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it's really important to acknowledge the factors that are behind perfectionism. When I was in high school in Minnesota, people told me all the time, you know, it doesn't matter where you go to college. Like all colleges are basically the same, doesn't matter. And that was very much a cultural attitude that people had there. And I think it's important to think about like when it does matter, right? And we we live in such a winner take all world which I found just again and again. And particularly for certain people, there is a higher burden of perfection. And I face that because of my family background and my housing situation. But, you know, I've talked to so many people of color who also feel held up to this really high standard that you know, it's it's not an option to be mediocre in many situations. For people who rely on their employers to sponsor their visas, like, you can't slack off. So what do you do now? What's your life like now? So I left Google a couple of years ago, and I was working as a software engineer at Facebook when I sold my book, Acceptance. Mm. And I went through a period of really thinking about what being a software engineer meant to me, especially when I wrote an essay that was titled, After Working at Google, I'll Never Let Myself Love a Job Again. Mm. And it was about how I thought about Google as my dream job, as kind of the answer to my childhood prayers. It was this company that took care of my basic needs. It gave me food, the doctor, and it really felt like a family to me. And I felt like a lot of their perks were designed to make that connection. And it was very perfect until I reported a mentor for harassment. Hmm. And then it turned into maybe predictably a nightmare mm-hmm. where I was like encouraged to seek counseling. The investigation dragged on for a really long time. And it eventually led to my departure from the company. And after I wrote about it, I was really lucky to be in this dialogue with all of these people about what does it mean to love a job? And for me, I had found some peace by leaving Google to work at this company I didn't really care about or even like, which was Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was really like, I want to see what it's like there. Like, I want to see how how bad it is. And I was like, you know, it's a job. Mm-hmm. And it felt really healthy in a way, to be like, this is a job. And also, it felt crushing in another way that I really hadn't let myself fully feel. And so I ended up leaving Facebook, 
to write full time. And how does that feel? Feels great. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of pressure to have the thing that I love, that I've loved since I was a kid, to have that be like, okay, this is this is how I'm going to make money now. Yep. I definitely have at least once a week. I'm like, I think I should. I think I should go like polish off my software engineering <laughs> resume and like go back to the go back to the office. <sighs> I have a lot of dreams where Google begs me to take me back, begs me to come back. Yeah. And so it definitely was not an easy decision, but it is, it's really wonderful to feel like, okay, I did put in all this work over all these years to have a career that would be financially sustainable and that would allow me to like save money and to really intentionally pivot away from that survival mindset into the idea of like, I am able to do what I wanted to do from the very beginning. And that is like such a luxury. And I'm so grateful to be able to make that my full-time endeavor. Well, Emmy, thank you so much. Thank you for your, your, your writing and, and for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Maura. I really appreciate it. That's it for today's show. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family, to all of our guests for sharing their stories, and to our advertisers who bring you the show. If you love The Anxious Achiever, tell your friends. Subscribe, leave a review, follow us. You can also tweet me at MauraAM or find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.